from Public Health Institute. Welcome to the PHICDC Global Health Podcast, a podcast that highlights stories from the PHICDC Global Health Fellowship Program, a U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Limited Program implemented by the Public Health Institute. Our fellows are guided by CDC Global Health experts and work on the front lines of global health, developing the technical and professional skills needed to make meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges. I'm your host, Whitney Hall, the program's administration and communications specialist. Our guest today is Dr. Janelle Wright. Janelle started at CDC as a fellow years ago. She's worked all over the world and now is a mentor to a fellow on our program. She is based in Guatemala and is the regional director of the Division of Global HIV and Tuberculosis for CDC Central America, which is part of CDC Center for Global Health. To mix things up a bit for this episode, the fellow Janelle mentors, Christine Gutierrez, is kicking off this episode to talk about her experience with Janelle as a mentor. So my name is Christine Gutierrez. I am the PHI fellow supporting the Central America team of the Division of Global HIV and TB. Uh, Janelle Wright is my mentor um, and I've had a lot of mentors in my life and I have to say Janelle is definitely one of the best. She's just exactly what you'd want in a mentor. She's considerate, she's motivating, she's generous with her time and her energy. I feel really fortunate to have her as my mentor during this fellowship. Uh, Janelle is an excellent leader, which I think is something that sets her apart from others, men- other mentors that I've had. Uh, once you come up with an idea and you talk to her about it, there's really no stopping you. Uh, Janelle is the definition of where there's a will, there's a way. And that determination is infectious and it makes you feel like you can do anything. And I know that's something that I'll take away from this fellowship and apply to the rest of my career. Um, Janelle is the type of boss that pushes you to be the best you can be. She'll give you opportunities to go outside of your comfort zone, uh, sometimes way out of your comfort zone. Um, And that's been a bit challenging for me. But with those challenges, I've grown a tremendous amount in this year. Um, With a mentor that 100% believes in you, I think you take chances that you wouldn't normally take. And that leads to outcomes that you wouldn't normally get, right? So uh, I wish everyone had a chance to have a mentor like Janelle. Uh, This experience has been life-changing in many, many ways, uh, from moving to Central America and working with such incredible professionals. Um, It's all been great, but one of the biggest impacts has definitely been Janelle as my mentor. So, yeah, I I hope from her interview we can learn and continue to learn. She has so much wisdom, so much, you know, experience that we can learn from, and I think uh, she's really, really just one of the best mentors out there. So maybe we could get started with what your current role is at CDC in Central America and how long have you worked with the agency? Sure. Thank you so much, Whitney. And it's great to be on the podcast. I have to be honest and say this is my first podcast, so I'm very excited about that. Um, So I started with CDC um, back in 2008, um, and I started as a a fellow and at the time it was uh, a different organization that was providing um, the opportunity for fellows and um, I actually went straight to Vietnam and I worked there for two years as a program management fellow um, mostly working on um, system strengthening and public health institutes um, and working with them and then I stayed on actually for a couple of years as a, as a contractor uh, working in the whole country on system strengthening and human resources for health. And, um, and then from there, I moved to Central Asia. Um, I went uh, to Kazakhstan. It's right below Russia. Uh, for those of you who are trying to figure out where that is, 
It's actually the ninth largest country in the world. So fun fact for the day. And um, so I got based in Almaty, Kazakhstan. And um, I was covering the whole region. I started out as a coag manager uh, cooperative for co cooperative agreements. And then um, I became the deputy director in the, the office. And then I was the acting director for several years. Um, so just kind of moving right up. And uh, I was working there on HIV uh, activities in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, um, and limited in Uzbekistan. And so that provided me uh, a lot of work for about five and a half years. And then from there, I actually moved to a position with USAID in Ukraine um, in 2018 to 2019, uh, working on system reform. Uh, and so that was a little bit of a different uh, career trajectory for me, but very exciting to work on health systems and, and, and reform there in Ukraine. And then I came to Central America based in um, Guatemala, covering Central uh, all the Central America countries. And um, here I've been, uh, I just got here in October 2019 and, and had about four or five months before um, the pandemic started. And then uh, I've been in Guatemala since then. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You've really had a truly global experience. What sparked your initial interest in public health or global health? So how did you, you know, initially get started in this field? When I was in high school, I loved chemistry and biology and uh, I thought this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be a doctor. Um, I'm going to go and save the world. And I, I don't know if all, all high schoolers are like that, but I definitely uh, worked really hard to try to figure out how I was going to get there. So, um, and, and I loved everything that had to do with serving people. And so I spent my summers working in mobile clinics and in hospitals in Central America. Um, I worked in Honduras and in Guatemala. And I remember calling my mom and I, I was complaining to her about how we were seeing the exact same diseases over and over and over. Um, and I just said, if I could just go to those communities and, and teach them how to eat better or how to, you know, um, you know, come in for their, you know, antenatal clinic um, tests early or whatnot. I think it was a very idealistic uh, question, but it was a frustration because we were seeing uh, the same diseases over and over and, and treating the same thing. And so my mom, I remember her response. She said, Janelle, have you ever thought about public health? And I said, I have no idea what that means. Um, and she said, that's when you look at the population and look at different interventions that you can do uh, to help people um, establish uh, a better health, um, a, a better population health, not just individual health. And from then, I thought, this is what I have to do. I have to go figure out what this is. And um, so from then, I had, you know, at that point started a degree in pre-medicine and biology in, in college and so I finished that out and uh, before deciding on going to medical school my mom encouraged me uh, both my mom and my dad encouraged me to take a year and, and figure out what I wanted to do it's very wise words from them so I uh, went to Ecuador, Malawi, and Guatemala in a year uh, and started working with um, HIV and 
just fell in love with how much work, uh, or I didn't fall in love with the work necessarily. I just fell in love with the, um, the field of public health to be able to help people on a larger uh, scale um, to do interventions that made a difference at a population level. And, um, and also for HIV being able to uh, really bring hope and dignity to vulnerable populations through getting them linked to care, getting them linked to treatment, managing their um, their disease progress, and then on a, on a whole, um, bringing some support to vulnerable populations um, such as migrants or um, uh, the poor or whatnot. So I think that got me on the right path to start my master's in public health, and then I did my um, my master's degree, and I did an internship in China, because I thought, okay, I've worked in Africa, I've worked in South America, um, I need to work in Asia. So I went to Western China and um, worked in a university for a couple of months and got a totally different perspective on public health, um, which was great. And I think from there, uh, I got very interested in um, Asia, and then I Um, after I finished my master's degree, I applied for fellowships and um, I got this fellowship in Vietnam. Uh, I remember sitting in a class in grad school and and we had some speakers that came and we were having lunch with them and and I remember sitting next to this gentleman and I asked, he was from CDC, and I asked him, how how do you get a job at CDC? And he said, I remember him looking at me, he was on my left and he looked at me and he's like, Janelle, you need to find a fellowship. That's how you get into CDC. And I was like, all right, that's what I got to do. So, um, so yeah, I applied for a bunch of fellowships and um, I had no idea, to be honest, that CDC was working overseas. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to, to work in, you know, the, the, the biggest public health uh, organization in the United States, which is CDC. So uh, what was great about that is that, yeah, they had this fellowship that placed fellows um, in CDC offices uh, around the world. And so I was really excited to be placed in uh, Vietnam. And so, yeah, that's how I, uh, that's how I came to work at CDC is I, I started out as a fellow. It's great. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear your path and how you ended up with CDC. Does your, I'm curious, since your mom suggested public health in the beginning, does she come from a public health background or um, a health background at all? Yeah, that's such a good question, Whitney. So uh, my parents uh, did development work. I was actually born and raised overseas um, and my mom is an occupational therapist and she worked with um, vulnerable children in uh, many of the countries that we lived in. And she would, um, you know, do occupational therapy things. I'm not exactly sure exactly what those <laughs> things are, but <laughs> I should know. Yeah. Uh, but she was helping them with, um, you know, getting, getting uh, with fine motor skills and, and whatnot. And, um, and then my dad is an electrical engineer and he was working um, with uh, small hospitals around the world, putting electrical, um, putting the electrical design together. And so my parents come from a very, or, or my parents had a service oriented um, uh, life. And I think that rubbed off on me quite significantly. Um, and so I think that they were exposed to a lot of different um, 
the fields uh, of service while they were working. And actually, they're still working. So I shouldn't say that while they were working, but they're still going. Thanks for sharing. It's really, it's always interesting to hear about kind of how people find out about public health because it's such a broad field. Um, Are there any field experiences in other countries or regions that stand out to you as highlights of your career? I know you've, you know, talked a little bit about um, being in, you know, Kazakhstan and Vietnam and all these different places. But um, yeah, I'm curious if there's like any specific stories that really uh, stand out in your career so far. The one that stands out to me, and, and I would say that there are several, the, the biggest one is the people. Um, I've worked in four country offices now, and the local staff in each of those countries have been unbelievable. They've brought me into their homes, they've um, counted me as family, and I think that's just something I never anticipated in going into this work. I would normally, you know, when I was thinking about this question, when you asked, I would go straight to, you know, the the successes that I've had or the things that I've been able to see in my work, but, and I'll I'll mention those, but the biggest thing is um, the relationships that I've built, the family connections, and I'll say family because uh, they have become family over the years, and just the ability to connect with um, so many different cultures and find myself belonging to each one of them um, and still belonging to uh, my own culture and uh, my own family. But I would say that is the biggest highlight of my career and will always be is the people. Um, And and I would say as I leave each place that I go uh, into another place, it is the people that are the lasting the lasting relationships that you have, the lasting impact that you have is the relationships. Um, I remember in, and I would say, you know, I, I hesitate to say any of these because I have so many, um, so many of these experiences, but um, in Tajikistan, there was, um, there, there's a laboratory in, and she is one of the most kind, loving individuals that I've ever worked with. And her parents live in the northern part of Tajikistan, where we had a um, an intervention site. And anytime we went up there, her parents would um, invite me into their home and call me their daughter and feed me so much food. And I'm a vegetarian in a place where they love meat. So they, they looked up all the recipes on how to modify all of the food to make it vegetarian. And they would sit and we would you know, laugh over my Russian and my poor Russian and they would teach me um, just things about Tajikistan and uh, their their way of living and we come from different religions, we come from different backgrounds, but there was always that connection um, and every time I left their house I felt like um, I, I belong, you know, I belong to uh, a family in Tajikistan. Um, the same thing in Kyrgyzstan, where um, some of the staff brought me in to um, help me learn how to make their traditional plof, uh, and so I could make it for my family back home. And then, um, you know, just recently here, um, it's been difficult to gather because of COVID, but um, I was able to attend a, a family birthday party with a local staff member and just their openness to me. And as I left, they said, you're part of our family now. And so I think that's been a highlight of my career, if you allow me to, to, to share that. 
um, just to to underscore how important that is to me and something that will continue to you know keep me going. I did my dissertation on uh, Project Echo, which is a virtual learning um, and mentoring program that was started at the University of New Mexico. And in 2015, we um, I was approached by Laura Tyson at CDC. She was running after me after a, a session at headquarters. And she's like, Janelle, have you ever heard of Project Echo? And I was like, Laura, I don't have time for this. I need to go. And she's like, no, 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 I think you would like it. Um, so we sat down and, um, you know, Laura helped me introduce, you know, introduce me to this program that allows healthcare workers to connect virtually and maintain a, a virtual community of practice that really changes lives, not only the providers' lives, but the community uh, and patients as they, um, as the providers connect weekly on uh, Zoom. And, um, and now we're in this like weird world of Zoom and everything like that. But before the pandemic, this was a really new uh, initiative to connect uh, providers weekly um, and help them share experiences and disseminate new information to them. And so I did my dissertation on the impact of Project ECHO on uh, the HIV epidemic in Kazakhstan. And I think a highlight of my career was just going through the data and realizing how much uh, this project, this program had provided a connection for providers so that they felt, um, you know, inspired and motivated to transition patients to better schemes of treatment, um, how to provide mental health services to them, how to manage their co-infections, and um, just seeing how the epidemic started to change because providers were um, equipped with the right information and um, and just how excited they were to participate in that. So I think that was a, a that's been a big um, highlight. Another one was um, just a few months ago in July, actually July 7th, as I remember, I stood on the tarmac of the airport in Guatemala City watching an American Airlines flight land um, and then uh, I was just overwhelmed um, as vaccines came off of that flight, two million, um, to provide vaccines to the Guatemalans. Um, and it was in that moment that we were suffering from a really, really significant and deadly wave of, of COVID-19 during the summer in Guatemala. And just as those, as those, um, it was actually four, sorry, 4. million doses and it for uh, over 2 million people. And I just thought this is gonna bring so much hope uh, to the people of Guatemala. And I had provided a lot of ins, uh, support in arranging that, um, that vaccine donation with the White House and the Ministry of Health in Guatemala. So it was unbelievably satisfactory to see that. And then I was able to go to some sites um, after that and see the doses actually get put into arms and see the faces of the people that it changed. I mean, they went from being scared to having hope that they won't die from this deadly disease. And that's an incredible moment to see the faces. Um, and I, I guess most recently, this was actually just a couple of weeks ago, um, we started a new initiative in Colombia, in Peru, a couple of years ago to bring HIV services to Venezuelan migrants who are living in um, Colombia, in Peru. And um, 
you know, in Colombia, the government has opened up the opportunity for people to come from Venezuela and get services and um, uh, and get what would be close to citizenship actually in Colombia, but it's it's just not going fast enough. And with the COVID situation and with the overwhelming amount of Venezuelan migrants coming into Colombia, the government doesn't have enough support to be able to, to um, support all of them. And so through our support, we've been working with a, an organization called Aid for AIDS in, uh, based out of New York City actually, but they have clinics all over Colombia and we were able to talk to some of the people who are receiving these services and I think um, I just get chills thinking about it they were talking about how much um, they they had lost all hope because in Venezuela they don't have antiretrovirals for HIV they knew they were going to die and so their last ditch effort was to come to Colombia and seek services and as tears rolled down their face they were just overwhelmingly you know saying thank you thank you thank you for providing the support because if not the the Colombian government doesn't have enough um, antiretrovirals to support us but through your clinics we're able to get on treatment um, and go from being almost dead to you know being able to find um, some work to support our families or just to keep on living. Um, and I remember this one lady, you know, she was infected with HIV um, and came to uh, Colombia and she looked at me and she said, you know, my life isn't worth living, um, but I just keep on trying. And she got treatment and through that treatment site, they continue to reinforce to her that her life is valuable, that she is... Um, you know, worth her life is worth living, and I was so proud to be um, providing support with that organization that would provide dignity to a lady. That you know, there's millions of Venezuelan migrants, but for that woman, it changed her life, um, and hopefully for many, many more, it will. And so I think those are moments where I know the road is going to be long to try to continue to get support for those kind of programs, but. Um, that was a that was a highlight um, to know that these services that I've worked hard to establish have changed lives. It sounds like a lot of your your work is getting people access to care, whether that's HIV um, or medication to treat HIV or COVID nineteen vaccination. Is your work kind of split between between those two right now? So my main work is on HIV. Um, and uh, and TB, um, but you know, working in a CDC office overseas, you kind of work on whatever comes your way, uh, and so there is a lot of need to, to work with um, issues related to COVID nineteen, and so I stepped in and, and helped with vaccines, trying to get uh, syringes into the country to get those vaccines in arms, um, and then you know, in in Guatemala we have. Um, many, many, many programs, not just HIV. Um, so there's an aw- awesome opportunity to work in a lot of different areas, but mostly I do work on HIV. Well, I loved what you were talking about earlier too with relationship building in, in different countries. I'm curious how many languages you speak, <laughs> but I'm also, um, yeah, just interested in, you know, in other lessons you've learned working in the field of global health that kind of um, you know, whether that's relationship building or communication or other things that come to mind, uh, I'm sure that, you know, there are lessons that apply to, to various countries that you've worked in. 
I think that's so intuitive that you saw that. I I am an extrovert, so I love to talk um, and uh, and I love to connect with people. So learning languages is really important. Um, so I grew up hearing and speaking some Spanish. Um, and then when I went to Vietnam, I studied Vietnamese and um, was was good enough to order um, in Vietnamese um, and travel. And then I, I did work like the last two two years. I was able to to read PowerPoints and, and to um, understand what was going on in meetings. Vietnamese is, is not for the faint of heart. Let's put it that way. Um, and then when I was in Kazakhstan, I learned uh, Russian. And um, and when I say I learned Russian, I really studied it very hard, um, but it is also a very challenging language. And so I would say by the end of the time that I was there, I could have um, basic conversations and um, communicate. When I was in Ukraine, my favorite thing that I would do is uh, uh, memorize speeches. And so I gave uh, speeches in Ukrainian. I would just memorize them. And uh, I think that was my, I loved seeing the faces of people like, who is this American woman who is speaking Ukrainian? And then I thought, oh, if they come up to me afterwards and try to speak Ukrainian, this is going to be a challenging conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's true. You know, it's, it's such an important part of connection with uh, the culture or um, there's, there's ways of saying things in another language that give you insight into the culture and um, and how things are, you know, in Vietnamese, there's seven different ways of addressing somebody depending on how old they are and your relationship to them. And that's so important, um, compared to English, which is just you. And, um, and then the same in, in Russian and in Spanish, there's the formal, informal, and, um, and, and those are just really important to understand as you, as, as you navigate the, the um, you know the international space, I I think um, beyond that I, I reflect when I I think it was like in two thousand eighteen I came across a speech by Bill Fagy, he was giving a commencement speak speech actually at, at Emory, and he said. You cannot imagine what will be invented in the future. You cannot imagine the opportunities that will be presented. You enter a world of infinite possibilities, confusing ideas, continuous changes, but a life plan will limit your future. Instead of a life plan, spend your time developing a life philosophy, and then you will have the tools to evaluate every fork in the road. What is truly important to you? Um, and I think until that point in my life, I had been trying to say, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. And so I think a big lesson for me has been don't develop a life plan, develop a life philosophy. Um, and that truly has provided me a way forward in many of the different um, decisions that I make in my life. Um, and my life philosophy is influencing to provide hope and dignity to vulnerable populations. And so anytime that I've made a decision about a job or um, things to invest in in my time, I think, is this, is this something that I can do to, to influence so that I can actually bring um, hope and dignity to vulnerable populations? And a lot of things get filtered out. Um, a lot of jobs get filtered out. And um, because there are opportunities that come up that, that 
provide that opportunity to do that. And then there's opportunities that come up that don't provide that opportunity. Even though they might be really great opportunities, they just don't align with that life philosophy. So um, that's been an enormous um, help to me and I would absolutely encourage other people to do that, to bring clarity to your life and to bring clarity on, on decision making. Um, and just kind of into that, knowing your priorities. I think a lot of people talk about, well, I've had to sacrifice this in order to do this. Um, and I think getting into that language is really dangerous because it's actually priorities over other priorities. And um, I think it's a natural thing in life when you do this over that, you're, you're prioritizing one thing over the next. And so um, by prioritizing being overseas, I know that I'm you know, not going to be able to see my family every weekend or that I will have to speak a different language or, or um, not get as much of a salary or um, benefits or whatnot. And I think it's important to know those priorities and to own those priorities. Um, I think another big lesson that I've learned is public health equals change. And change is hard. People don't want to change. Um, I want to keep on eating my um, peanut butter every day, but um, I know that that is not the best thing for me. But that's a lot of times um, the uphill battle that we face in public health is asking people to change, um, wear a mask, get vaccinated, etc. You know, and so we find ourselves, why don't people want to change? Like, I think it's just managing your expectation that this is a field in which we are we are trying to help um, a population that doesn't necessarily want to change um, to change. And so having that expectation is really important. I think the other thing in that is that a million people will tell you everything wrong with your ideas. Um, and if you know it's the right thing to do, you just got to go for it. You have to keep on going. Um, there's a, a lot of people that are, you know, want to keep the status quo, keep the programs as they are, um, don't change. And once you bring clarity to why and how things can change, um, I think you can and bring a lot of impact and influence into those spaces. Um, the other, another thing that I've learned is things aren't always what they seem. Um, I learned this lesson early on. I was in Vietnam and I was with our country director, Michelle McConnell, and uh, we were in a meeting with uh, Vietnamese uh, Ministry of Health. It was not going the way that I thought it should be going. And she just kept her cool. And in the middle of a conversation, she's like, thank you very much for meeting with us. We'll get back to you. And um, you know, we'll be in touch on our next meeting. And I like looked at her and I thought, wait a second, we haven't agreed to anything. We, this is not going the way that I thought it was going to go. And, um, I was kind of angry actually in the middle of our meeting because it wasn't productive. It wasn't efficient, all things that I really want. Um, and then after the meeting, I was able to talk to her and she gave me all the context on what was going on. Um, and just, I learned so much from her, on being kind, being um, humble, being respectful. And that has kept with me since then. Her modeling of that uh, was enormously impactful on my life. Another thing that I've learned, pay attention to the tension. When you're feeling tension, pay attention to it. Um, and when you're overseas and you're working in a different culture, in a different language, um, with different values, it's important to 
to understand what's going on. Um, and so there's going to be, you know, things that don't seem right, or there's going to be times when you feel exhausted and you don't know why, or you feel like this per the communication isn't right. Pay attention to that. And what do I mean by that? It doesn't necessarily mean having long conversations or whatnot, but just checking in with yourself. Why, are, why is this feeling off? Why is this feeling um, not right? And a lot of times it's, you know, you're burned out or you're, you know, there's a mental health thing there, or maybe there's a gray line that there's not a specific clear path forward. Um, and so taking time to do more research or taking time to um, ask more questions is important. And then I would say um, paying attention to resentments um, that you might have. And so people talk a lot about work-life balance. I like to talk about quality of life, actually, and um, because everybody has a different life. Uh, some people who have a partner and uh, family at home, or they might have uh, older family members that they're taking care of, or pets, or other things. And it's important to make sure that um, that you know uh, what are those things and the priorities in your life that that provide quality of life. And maybe that's you know loving your job and loving working hard, and you don't have to be ashamed of that. Keep on going. Um, but m maybe part of that is you need to take some time and spend with your um, your mom or, or your dad that that needs some support and not being ashamed of. The, ashamed of that and that's part of it um you know i started at the beginning of the pandemic we had meetings every single morning that started at 6 a.m because we're two hours behind atlanta and i really started resenting those and i thought why 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 i love working and i love working hard and i thought oh because i have to give up the time that i work out um so i love running and lifting weights and um you know just working things out, you know, in the morning, uh, physically. And I realized like I wasn't able to do that. And so for my work-life balance, I needed to figure out how I was going to manage all of those morning meetings and be able to get in my workouts, um, and not resent, um, that these were, these, uh, meetings were encroaching on my life. Um, but you know, other than that, I, you know, People are like, oh, you know, do you get asked to do more work because you're single? And I was like, no, I love working. I want to work harder. Um, a lot of times people have to tell me not to work so hard, but I don't mind it, you know. But there's certain things in my life that um, I, I, I pay attention to because those are things that are really valuable to me. Um, I would say along those lines, establishing habits has been unbelievably important. I have like a two and a half hour routine in the morning. Um, that seems like a lot, but if I do that every single morning, it sets me on the right path. And I do it even when I'm traveling um, so that every single morning I do the exact same thing, whether I'm traveling, whether I'm at home, um, whether I'm on vacation, actually, I do it every morning. Um, and, and, and that's been built up over the last few years, but it keeps my energy, this, the, what I want it to be, and it keeps the clarity in my mind of why I do what I do and um, what, what it looks like to do that for the day. Um, and then I guess just going back to what you started with, Whitney, is connection and belonging are the root of success. 
Uh, and so finding those, those ways to connect and belong in a foreign um, country that maybe religions are different or values are different or language or ideologies or whatnot, there's still those moments of connection and belonging because we're all human beings um, and those are important to continue going. So I would say those are... <laughs> the biggest lessons that I've learned. Um, and I hope that, you know, some of those things will maybe answer uh, other questions that we have today. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That was great. Thank you so much. I mean, I think a lot of what you said speaks to having a strong sense of self, so self-awareness, but also being open to learning and reading other people and um, and having that flexibility. So I think that that's all really great advice and I'm sure will be helpful for people listening. Um, you are a mentor to one of our PHIE CDC Global Health Fellows, so changing, um, changing directions a little bit, Christine Gutierrez, who's based in Guatemala. Um, so I'm curious to hear what qualities you think help fellows make the most out of their fellowship, especially since you started at CDC as a fellow. Um, and then how do fellows contribute to your work and your office division mission and goals? So... If everybody could be like Christine, that would be amazing. Conversation over. Let's move on, right? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no. um, you know, I am very different from Christine, and I have learned so much about what I should have done as a fellow from her. Uh, and one of those things is that she is patient much more than I would have been. She, um, when I think, oh my goodness, I haven't provided her enough clarity. I haven't provided her enough direction. Um, she has patiently waited um, to kind of figure things out and observe and listen and read, ask people. And, um, but she's also been super patient with me. Um, she sends me very clear emails that are no more than four lines usually and with a very clear uh yes or no sort of thing so i can so i can um work with her but i think i think that would be a big thing is that for the fellows to know is that not all mentors know what they're doing (laughs) unfortunately we're kind of all in this together um trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to how to work on this but i would say it's it's helpful just to know that in general um but yeah i would say that that christine has been an incredible um uh example of how to to move into space. I mean, she came on um, and she was virtual for the first five months. We never even actually met each other, but she joined us every single morning for our daily check-in. And she just, she learned, she wrote down things. um, She poured over PowerPoint presentations that were probably outdated in some ways, but she kind of pieced it together. Um, But we also spent time together talking, um, going through her goals and objectives, and she would write things and then we would edit it and make sure that she was going in the right direction. Um, So that was really helpful. I think a big thing um, for fellows also is to know that you are a big part of the office, no matter how much you you think that you're just a fellow or I'm just over here. Energy is contagious. And so your energy that you bring um, to any meeting, to any email, to any um, communication um, is contagious and everybody, you know, the local staff are watching, the, uh, the the U.S. direct hire American staff are watching and partners are watching and they're paying attention to the energy that you bring. And so just being careful about that, being knowing um, how you're showing up um, 
I will say I'm super thankful that, you know, we have an opportunity to um, be on camera a lot so that I can see people and um, and that's a big part in just showing up the way that you really want to show up. And then um, I think a lot of fellows are coming from directly from school and where, you know, assignments are clear, you know what's expected of you, you turn it in, you get feedback and you move on to the next um, thing. And this is a very different um, environment where feedback may not always be given to you or you don't know exactly what is required of you or whatnot. And that's part of um, the tension as you move forward in the first year of your fellowship is just knowing that the pace is a little bit different, the feedback loop and the expectations are different. Um, deadlines are sometimes fudgeable, you know, if it's not due today, it might be due tomorrow or um, whatnot. So I think those are just being flexible in that way, I think has has gone a long way to um, just being successful um, as a fellow. Um, and, and I think if I have some opportunity just to speak to the mentors, I don't know if they're listening, but I, I would say to the mentors, um, you know, take time to delegate tasks. These are um, highly, highly skilled uh, fellows that have done an incredible job in their education um, and they're coming into a new work environment. So be um, be patient with them, but also, like I said, take time to delegate responsibilities, but not just responsibilities, authority. You know, be very clear on who has the authority to do what uh, with those responsibilities. Um, and then be clear on who makes decisions. Are you making decisions? Is the fellow making decisions? Uh, can they work autonomously? Can they work with you? Are they working with other people? Um, the other thing that I would say to mentors is this is a training program. It's not just um, it's not just another way of employing people. And so taking full advantage of that is really important. Providing opportunities for training. So going to conferences, whether that's virtually or in person, or allowing them to take turns um, working with different programs or different interests is super important to the development of fellows. Um, connecting them to different people within CDC or within other organizations, I think is part of the fellowship and, and the spirit of it. And then I think with feedback, I would just say, you know, reward what you want repeated. Uh, when you see fellows doing something that you really like and, and be very specific with that, acknowledge it. Thank you for writing that email like that. Like I said, like Christine writes very short emails because I've rewarded her for that. I said, thank you for writing me short emails with very specific outcomes or, or decision points. Um, and then, you know, I've seen um, instances where, you know, the, the, the relationship with the mentor and the fellow isn't going great. And I think for both, it's it's more of like you get what you tolerate. And so if you don't talk about it or if you keep on sweeping it under the rug, it doesn't necessarily always get better. It, it a lot of times just gets tolerated in some way. Um, but the way to do that is individually uh, talking with them. And so, you know, if you your fellow is coming into a new um, position, they're coming into a new fellowship um, and a new way of working. And so they're bound to make mistakes or do things that you wouldn't necessarily do that way or whatnot. Um, and so the taking the opportunity to either pull them aside or um, to say, you know, in a direct email, you know, maybe you could do this differently or actually this is outdated information. Can you please, you know, um, uh, use this information? Um, you know, even with fellows with other 
employees, that's what I always try to do is uh, correct individually, but not in front of everybody. It undermines uh, leadership in all, all directions. Um, and so just taking that opportunity to empower them to uh, correct their mistakes um, and to take ownership of those and move on and, and helping other people see that I think was super important. Um, so I just wanted to um, say a few things to the mentors out there too, because a lot of times we don't know exactly uh, the, you know, everything, the right thing to do all the time. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's, there's so many things to consider um, with mentorship. Are there, you know, I'm kind of curious how you, how you learned, um, kind of this, what was important in terms of skill sets to being a mentor. Um, so are there any mentors you have had that have been especially influential in your career? That's a really good question. I I would say the, the most important mentors that I've had are the local staff in the countries. And um, they have provided me with all the co- cultural context and how do I do this and what do I do here and how do I talk to this person about this and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, I, I would name every single one of them if I had time. And you know I would, Whitney. <laughs> I would take the rest of this time to talk about them. But yeah. <laughs> I would I would say, you know, that my more official um, mentors, Janine Ambrosio was my first mentor in, um, in Vietnam, and she took so much time with me um, to explain everything to me, to promote me. She looked for opportunities for me, and that's how I got to Kazakhstan, quite honestly, was through her um, guidance and leadership. Um, Irene Banesh is a, a mentor of mine from the prevention branch at CDC um, in Atlanta, and she was with me through all of Kazakhstan, um, and she was one of those people that I could reach out to when anything was happening in the country office, and I just needed somebody to talk to and have a, um, an outside perspective, and so she would, um, she's super busy, um, but she would always take the time, and even to this day, she still takes the time um, in her busy schedule to, to catch up with me and to talk with me and give me perspective. Um, I guess that, you know, one story that I have is I was in, um, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam and, and the country director at the time was Mitch Wolf and he was in Hanoi and he would come down to Ho Chi Minh City every, you know, every six to eight weeks. Uh, and one time he came down and he's like, hey, Janelle, I need you to come with me. And I was like, oh, yes, you know, yes, sir. And and he he was in a, uh, it was at the beginning of the day and I went into the conference room and he's like, you're hanging out with me for today. He's like, I just want, I just want to spend time with you, but um, I have a lot going on. So do you mind if you just hang out with me and, uh, and uh, you know, go to all my meetings with me? And I, that was one of the most impactful days, um, just shadowing him. Um, he took me to all his meetings. I heard all of the discussions. And um, one of the takeaways from that was observing how he made decisions and how he asked questions. Uh, and that was something that I took away for the, you know, for many years to come was just how he was so um, curious about things. Um, and so that he would make he would make good decisions and he didn't have a lot of information. He was super busy and so people would present things to him. He would ask a few questions, fascinating questions, and then he would make a decision and then move on to the next thing. Um, and so I think if you're a mentor, I, that's one thing that you can do is just have your 
mentoree sit in on all your conversations and um, your your work day and just uh, let them shadow you. Um, and a few years later, we were, I had already gotten to Kazakhstan at that time and we were in a, I was in a conference, I think it was in Durban in South Africa and um, Mitch was sitting there for lunch, for breakfast. He's like, hey, Janelle, come sit with me. So I sat down with breakfast. He's like, what are you doing now? And so I told him and he's like, you know, one day you're going to be my boss. And I thought, what? He's like the most important person, right? And he, his humbleness, um, but also he just believed in me, you know? And I think that went a long way to helping me have the confidence to, to keep on going. Um, and he and Chuck Vitek, um, who was in the Ukraine office at the time, they're like, hey, come on a walk with us. So I just listened to them. They were just like, hey, you know, come and, and chat with us. And I, their humbleness um, to allow me to integrate into their world um, and to understand what was going on, allow me to observe, um, obviously it has been super impactful on my life and now where I am today still has an impact on, on my day-to-day decisions and how I approach work and just the humbleness that they brought gives me the opportunity to be humble and um, to allow other people to come alongside of me and um, you know to experience what I'm experiencing. And, and I would say the last thing, Whitney, there's been some mentors mm-hmm. in my life that I wouldn't say are mentors in a good way. They were mentors in a really bad way um, mm. in that they showed me exactly what I shouldn't do. Um, and those mentors have, um, obviously I won't mention their names, um, but they have allowed me to see how I don't want to be treated, how I don't want to treat other people, what it feels like to be... Um, you know, pushed aside or what it feels like to be undermined or all of those things. And maybe I just wanted to give them some credit, right? Because that has also shaped um, me in how I approach work and life. It's not just the amazing mentors that I've had, but some of the ones that have just showed me, yeah, this isn't how I want to lead or this isn't how I want to make people feel. And so I'm not going to do those things. <laughs> I hope that's okay that I shared that. Um, yeah, I think definitely. that's important too. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's such a good point and something people often don't bring up is that those challenging times are really like teachable moments. Um, Even though they can be like painful or uncomfortable, you can always learn something. So I think that's, yeah, a really great point to bring up. Um, Well, you have talked a lot about soft skills um, earlier, but I'm curious what technical skills you think are most important working in global health right now. Sure. You know, I think it really depends on your interest in public health. There's, you know, when I was at the School of Public Health in Chapel Hill, there was, I think, at least eight different departments. There's biostatistic, environmental health, maternal and child health, behavior change, um, health behavior, health education, um, nutrition, um, population health, policy Um, management. And so in all of those different areas, I think obviously it's important to know uh, where you might have strengths and then to go into those areas. Um, I think a lot of people think about um, public health and they're like, you should have data um, skills and you should and 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 um, be able to work with numbers and statistics and whatnot. And those are really important to be able to analyze um, data and look at trends and look at um, epi curves and those things. And those are obviously really important. I'll give you one technical skill that you may not expect, and that would be budgets. <laughs> um, public health is actually a very, very driven by budgets. And so I think um, 
If you're able to develop budgets, um, analyze budgets, um, execute budgets, uh, and not be scared of it. I remember the first year of grad school, I was like, why am I in this uh, finance class? And I will tell you that that was one of the most important classes that I took in public health school because after that, knowing how to execute a budget has been unbelievably important. Um, I would also say, you know, for technical skills, um, just being comfortable with learning different uh, systems, whether that's SAS or Stata, um, whether that is, um, you know, the, the statistical, um, uh, the statistical uh, systems. Um, but I think also being able to navigate, you know, um, some of the the dashboards. And as you grow in your leadership and, and roles, you'll find yourself that you're not doing as much of the data analysis, that you are actually making decisions based on the data analysis. So I think a big technical skill, and maybe people think this is a soft skill, is how you make decisions. So learning how um, to ask good questions, learning what information you need from where, how to do research, how to read publications, um, I think are, are super important to making decisions as you grow in your uh, as you grow in your career and as you grow in your um, your leadership. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's all really interesting. I, you're the first person I've uh, heard say that about budgets, so that's really great to know. <laughs> I, it's so. unbelievable how much if you know how to how to manage your budget, what you can do, um, and and. And I'll just give you one example. You know, we were doing mm -hmm. um, advocacy for a different system in one of the countries that we work in. And, you know, one of the team members is unbelievable in her technical skills uh, in this one area. And she brought all of the information on the quality of these services and how they need to do it and how the access for the patient's going to increase. And my first question to her was, how much is this going to cost? And she kind of looked at me and I looked at her. She looked back at me. And I looked at her and I was like, I guess we got to figure out, huh? <laughs> so we brought mm -hmm. in our health economist and we did um, we did an in-depth uh, cost-effective analysis. Um, and that was able to, he, he put that together with the data that she had collected on quality and access and, and whatnot. And we were able to provide a presentation to the Ministry of Health last week um, on on how this was gonna be a cost-effective alternative uh, to what, and, and when I say cost-effective, it doesn't necessarily mean cost-saving, it's a cost-effective um, approach to this one intervention. Um, and it was interesting because she, the, the, the person from the Ministry of Health uh, immediately took the microphone um, and she said, I have never seen somebody tell me exactly what I need to do like this. <laughs> She said, I, we are often um, given all the reasons why we should do something for the quality, but I never know how much it's going to cost, so we don't do anything. But now I know how much it's going to cost, um, and so I have a way forward because not only is it better access for patients, better quality of services for the patients, but it's actually a lower cost to the health system. Um, and so being able to provide that triad of information to policymakers is unbelievably important. That makes total sense. I mean, there's long-term costs and short-term costs and 
Um, yeah, just really interesting <laughs> to hear. Uh, well, on top of that, I, um, this kind of just is our wraps up our, our interview, but uh, I'm curious if you have any favorite public health trainings or resources you recommend for people either, you know, with a similar background to you or those who are newer to public health. And then if there's any kind of other nuggets of advice that you have for listeners who are eager to work in global health, I know you've shared a lot already, but just wanted to make that space if there's anything else you'd like to add. So I, one of the most impactful books that I read, and I know I've, I've mentioned Bill Fagey, um, he wrote a book called House on Fire, and it's about smallpox and the uh, response in, um, I think it was Nigeria. I hope it was Nigeria. Now I'm going to, it was a while ago when I read it, but, um, Uh (laughs) um, but that really helped me understand sort of the history of global public health. Um, and he was, you know, just a pioneer in helping and partnering with countries around the world, um, to help, you know, bring services and access and, and, and help stop smallpox actually, um, in, um, and I think he also worked in TB and, and some other infectious diseases and then eventually became the director of the CDC. Um, but the last chapter in that book, if you don't read the entire book and you just want to read the last chapter, um, I think that gives a lot of just reflections on his career as a public health officer and um, why it was important to him. That was a really great book. Um, being able to read journal articles, I think, has been uh, really helpful in the areas that I'm, you know, I'm really interested in health systems. I'm health interested in human resources for health. I'm interested in um, infectious diseases, and so I read a lot of um, the publications, and um, you know, try to gain, um, you know, innovative approaches to doing things. Um, so yeah, I wish I had more uh, more specific things. I guess the last thing that I would say, uh, you know. I think that as you grow in your success, um, make sure that your character develops at the same pace or outpaces your success. And the reason why I say that is um, Brene Brown, her books have really helped me understand the importance of character. Um, in, and as you said, Whitney, on, um, on self uh, you know, just self-care and self-identification and, and knowing um, the, the ways to, to mature. Um, and so I see, you know, I say that because I see a lot of people that they start working in public health and they're thinking this is going to be such a great adventure. I'm going to go wear a hazmat suit and solve and save the world. And, and you heard from me, that was what I thought I was going to do. And I <laughs> when I first started out was I was going to go save the world and that was just the wrong approach. You know, I think that um, it's really important to make sure that you understand your why um, and ensure that you have staying power for uh, working in this area because like I said, public health equals change um, and that's not always easy to continue to work in that area. Um, And so making sure that your character, um, that your integrity, that your kindness, your generosity, continues to um, be established as you grow in your career. And so when you get to be the director of, you know, XYZ organization, that you have the tools, you have the interpersonal tools, and you have the character um, to be able to do that role. And I think we talk a lot about performance, and we talk a lot about the the skills that you need to succeed um, 
and those are super important. That's why you go to school and get those um, those uh, skills um, to do epi curves and uh, you know write publications and whatnot. Um, but as you succeed, as you're really good at those things, you will continue to grow in leadership and be called upon to do um, really big things. And um, if your conduct, if you're mean to people, um, if you are uh, undermining people, if you gossip about people, if you're um, you know rude to ministries of health, you won't get the, the opportunities to continue to grow in your career. And so I guess I would just say that as a final thing and encourage people um, to um, grow in their own leadership and, and to grow in their own person, um, to be able to, to do all the awesome things that you can already do um, in public health. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I feel like so much of what you shared today is is applicable not just to public health or global health, but just career advice in general. So, um, <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is it is just being yeah. a good person, you know, in the right. in the world. You know, be kind, make good decisions. I, I end a lot of meetings saying that: be kind and make good decisions. <laughs> Well, that's a great note to end on. So um, thank you so much, Janelle. I really appreciated hearing from you and learning from you. And uh, yeah, and appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Whitney. Really appreciate it. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Janelle Wright, Christine Gutierrez, and all of you for tuning in to the PHI CDC Global Health Podcast. This podcast is a project of the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship Program, implemented by the Public Health Institute and its partner consortium of universities for global health for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Please join us next time as we share more fellowship stories. To learn more about our program and see how we are making meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges, visit our website at phi-cdcfellows.org. If you enjoy the podcast, you can always subscribe or rate us and leave a review, which helps other listeners find the podcast. For questions, please email us at info at phi-cdcfellows.org. This podcast is produced by Whitney Hall. Thank you to Mike Sage, Christine Caraballo, Natasha Alcaz, Stephanie Gregory, Aurora Michael, Felicia Warren, CDC Center for Global Health, PHI, and CUGH.